All right, there we go. Well, we are back tonight, Wednesday night. It's nice to be able to get together in the middle of the week and, and uh, talk. And uh, since this is uh, hopefully a spiritual conversation <laughs> that we're getting ready to have, let's, uh, let's go before the throne of grace and uh, just get ourselves ready. Let's pray. Father, we're so blessed and privileged. We thank you that we still live in a free country where we can assemble ourselves together. Father, where we can open up your word without fear of retribution from the government. Father, that we can open up your word and soak it in. And Father, tonight as we open it up and and, uh, try to answer some questions, we pray the Holy Spirit would be our guide and that we would indeed be able to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we ask it in his name, amen. All right, uh, didn't get a whole lot of questions this time. Um, I got one uh, that it's uh, about how many times did Jesus tell us to give up this life for the future? You know, when you start looking at different uh, passages of scripture, how many times did he say lay down your life, in other words, uh, those, and so I didn't get an exhaustive list, but I got quite a few of them uh, that basically says that we get too focused on this life, we're going to be distracted, and we need to be thinking about the next one that we're going to live in, and because Charles Ryrie said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead, so it's kind of like, let's do the things that we're supposed to do and uh, be submissive in the right areas because when we do then um, uh, the father is going to reward us um, i came up with a few passages that uh, i'll just read because they're uh, it's the word it's powerful all by itself matthew 10 verses 38 and 39 says he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me uh, he who has found his life shall lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. It's basically saying that life on this planet is uh, uh, very attractive to say the least, but you really want to find out what's life indeed. Lay down your, your, your ambitions in, in a way in this life and you lay, lay those down and follow the Lord because He'll guide vocation. He'll guide your, you know, your lifestyle. He'll guide, he'll guide what you do wherever you go. So he said, that's basically the invitation. Is not worthy of me. And, and boy, that adds a whole new dimension to it, doesn't it? Because we're so, we're so in tune to pursuing fame, fortune, power, and pleasure that uh, that's, that's guiding our own life. Uh, in order in order to do it. Now, if we all had the same bells with the cell phones, that would be really hard to follow. Then we'd all be scrambling. Um, Matthew 16 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. If we really want to live... can and, that, that has wide range of applications to it. See, notice as Matthew 10, earlier on in his ministry, Matthew 16, later on in his ministry. And so there's where it's recorded twice in the same book. It basically is saying he's teaching the same message over and over again. It's, it's repetitious because this is the way we learn. Peter even said, I'm not going to apologize because I've already told you this before. Because you need to hear it again. Well, that's the way we are. Because, uh, I, you know, the older we get, it seems like the more we need to review, doesn't it? And uh, have you ever got about 30 minutes into a movie and go, I think I've seen this before. <laughs> and the older you get, you find out you have seen it before probably three or four times. But you don't remember exactly what was, what was in it. In the 8th chapter of Mark, he summoned the multitude, Mark 8, verse 34 to 38, he summoned the multitude with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Taking up your cross means you're going to have burdens to bear in this life, which is what he promised his disciples the night for the cross. 
in this world you have trouble. That's a promise. It's not a promise I know people like to claim. We always want the good ones, right? If we do this, then this good thing's going to happen. If we do this, it's a good thing. But also, if we follow another route, there's some discipline that's going to happen, and those are promised too. Uh, <clears throat> Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's shall save it. He's talking to disciples now. He's talking to people that have accepted Christ as their Savior, but a disciple is a student. That's mathetes, that's what it is. Um, a disciple is a student who seeks to be like his master. That's what a disciple is. And so he's saying, you want to be like me? All right, what is he getting ready to do? What is he, what is he, what is he doing, the fact he's walking on earth? He's laid down his life as the king of kings seated on the throne in heaven, right? And he's became man and he has taken his place here on earth. So he gave up one thing in order to gain another thing, which was us. What does it profit the man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. That's a that's a pretty important passage that is right there. Ashamed of me and my words. And what did he say in this this adulterous and sinful generation? That's first century he's talking about. That's why he's walking here on the earth. And and uh, what do we what do we have in this generation in which we live? Just the very same thing. With absolutely the 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 attempt at total annihilation of that which God has established, which is again the the divine institution, volition, marriage, family, and a nation. And right now, that's what the old devil is going after. Uh, Luke nine twenty two to twenty seven says, uh, "The Son of Man must suffer many things." be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, this is Luke 9. Okay, Luke is designed to be a chronology. According to the first five verses of Luke, Luke 1, he says, I want to set it out in the order in which it happened. So if you follow Luke as a chronology, then you fit the other gospels into it and you, you get that, that pattern, that that handout last Sunday on the, the final week of the cross that brings those those together and use Luke as your primary uh, chronological system uh, in order to do that. And here this Luke 9 is going to take us back not the final year of the cross, is it? Luke 9 is going to take us into year one or two of his ministry. And he's, he's telling him early on, he must be killed and raised up on the third day. So it's not like he waited and sprung it on him. It's not like it's something that was made up later after his, after his death and the disciples stole him away and the next thing you know, they, they're making this up. He was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life shall, shall lose it. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and all the holy angels. Now when he does that, he's, that the, the, the Jews at the first advent didn't know about the church. Okay, so when he's speaking about when the Son of Man comes in all the glory with all the holy angels, he's talking about second advent stuff. When he comes as the conquering king and he is going to, to do that, there's going to be a a judgment. Uh, I can end up going several directions tonight because I don't have a lot of questions. But <laughs> I've got one later. Okay. Well, when when you have the different judgments, at the rapture of the church is the bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. That's for the church. Okay. And then at the end of the tribulation, when it, which ends the age of Israel, you have another judgment for the, the age of Israel and prior believers where they are resurrected. 
because there's a resurrection of the church at the rapture. There's a resurrection of all previous generations at the second advent at the end of the age. That's Daniel chapter 12. And the final resurrection is the end of the millennial kingdom. So you have the, what's called the first resurrection in Revelation 20. It's got four parts to it. And the first part's Jesus. Next part is the rapture. Next part, second advent. Next part is the end of the millennial kingdom. So there's four parts to the what's called the first resurrection. Because the second one is resurrection into the lake of fire. That's uh, how, it's, how it's defined there. Yeah. That's when um, everybody prior to the church, okay, that was a believer prior to the church. Now that would include Adam, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so they can eat with us in the in the uh, so we can eat with them really in the great millennial uh, feast. And so we've got that's when that that's when that occurs. That's when Daniel is back. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and all the, all the great believers of the Old Testament. That's when they get their new body. Okay. Uh, Luke fourteen thirty three. So therefore no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now what that's saying is, there's been a lot of fundraising gone on that one too, I'll tell you. That's <laughs> probably the televangelists pick up a verse like that and they go, boy, you got to give it all away and hey, you can just bring it here. We'll take care of it for you. But uh, <clears throat> what it is is an attitude. It's an attitude that we've got a heavenly kingdom that we are going to and all this stuff is just passing away. I mean, that's the attitude given throughout Scripture. This is temporary. What did Abraham say? Hebrews chapter 11, we're just sojourners passing through this life. This is not our final home. This is not who we are. So when, when we have the, the right attitude about our, our things, if you will, about people, places, things, and events, if we have the right attitude about that, and we, we, they're, they're nice. They're designed for us to be enjoyed. God wants you to enjoy that which he has provided for you. But it's not the end-all, be-all. It's not what it's all about. What it's all about is about heaven one of these days. Uh, Matthew 6, 5. And six, uh, Matthew 6, 5, 16, and 18. These are people who do things to be seen by men rather than doing things to, to please the Father. And I start thinking about the things that where he says, lay down this old life which basically is one run by the sin nature that's selfish and pick up a new life which is unselfish like Christ. Become Christ-like in all we do. Romans 12, 1 and 2, present your body a living sacrifice. Uh, John 15, 13, greater love is no man than to lay down his life for his friends. 1 John 3, verse 16 and 17, uh, we know love by this, he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brethren in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, see, that's, that's a good question. That's a good question. So uh, <clears throat> I've seen people pull out a context of verse where Jesus said, uh, the poor you have with you always. And they put a period after that. And it basically gives them a free reign to not care about the poor. Uh, he said, and he put it back in the context and finished the verse. He said, the poor you have with you always, you can always do good for them, but you don't always have me. See, and he was, there he was, the, the criticism was going on because they'd wasted a bunch of expensive perfume to anoint his body for burial, and etc., and then, of course, the greedy people step in and said, that's just waste. And he said, no, the poor you have with you, always, you can always do good to them. Okay, not that you should never do good for them. But uh, anyway, I had a conversation with uh, another pastor about that one time. He quoted that to me, and, and uh, I finished the verse for him. So anyway, um, also part of this uh, this same question 
was about um, in heaven, we're all going to be without sin natures. We're going to be living and serving the living creator, redeemer of us all, and give us a glimpse of heaven. And I'm working on it. It's hard to, it's hard to even think about. You have to project yourself with no sin nature. And try to do that without pride. <laughs> I mean, because then you go, me perfect? Oh, but I think I already am. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean there's, there's things that fit in there. And you start thinking, what will we be doing in heaven? And you have to stop and, and ponder on that. You have to stop and think, without a sin nature, how would I treat the poor? But will you have any poor in heaven? So will it even be, be an issue? And will I always be gracious? Yes. But will we need to be gracious? Will anybody need grace in heaven? I mean, they're, they're questions that, these are legitimate questions <laughs> to try and answer, paint a picture of heaven for us. Uh, I've, I've got a book that I've started into, and uh, it's about that thick, so it's going to take me a while to get through it, but it's called Heaven. <laughs> and it's done by Randy Alcorn. It has been recommended to me by a, a couple of pastors I know and think a lot of. And uh, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll go through it. So hopefully I'll be able to give you a little better viewpoint, um, some more ideas in there, because all I can do right now, what, what's that song, I Can Only Imagine? Yeah. Well, that's pretty true. <laughs> pretty true. Uh, <clears throat> okay, uh, next question. Expand on the issue of the Lord's table taking the place of the feast. I brought this up Sunday morning when we were doing the, the Lord's table. And <clears throat> when, you, when you start looking at the intention of the feast, okay, what were they designed to do? And then you look at the intention of the Lord's table. You know that the feast, we're no longer under obligation to observe. Why? Because we're no longer under the law. The feast were given to Israel. What was one of the commands of the feast? Go up to Israel. Three times a year go up to Jerusalem and celebrate the feast. We can't do that. The church was given a whole different set of marching orders. Because we're gonna, the, the, what was going to happen is that people were going to be scattered all over the world. And it wasn't a command to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I mean, that's, that's part of what it is. Go into all the nations, okay, and teach them. Well, they can't go up to Jerusalem three times a year. So what he did was, was the feasts were fulfilled, all except the fall feast. Those feasts were fulfilled, so he established a new ritual that basically did the same thing. Now, the spring feasts were, <clears throat> what do we have, Passover? We have Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread, we have the Feast of first fruits. Fifty days after this, we had the Feast of Pentecost. And then in the fall, we have, what, the Day of Atonement. We have Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, now these first three feasts portrayed the first advent of Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, the bread that came down out of heaven, and the first fruit from the dead. Hey, all those are spelled out. That's not a hard, we're, we're not overdoing the typology here. And so these things, if you look at Hebrews 10.1, it says that they were given to establish uh, shadows for us. They were archetypes. These were the overruling types. So we have to look back and go, what did these things mean? John the Baptist knew what they meant. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He knew the Passover Lamb and he knew it was his cousin in the flesh that was, was the one. Uh, <clears throat> Pentecost was a giving of the law. They celebrated Pentecost because 50 days after they walked out of Egypt, they were at Mount Sinai. And so here's the law given to Moses and that's when the Feast of Pentecost was established. So that's 50 days after first fruit. So, uh, have these all been fulfilled? 
These have all been fulfilled, right? Now, the, the fall feast portrayed the second advent. The second advent, tabernacles, is a fulfillment, uh, points to the millennial kingdom. It's a time of rest, an extended time of rest. The day of atonement is, I know of my Redeemer lives, and at the last he shall take his stand on the earth. Job knew that. Job 19, 16, if I remember right. And the uh, Feast of Trumpets, calling all of Israel together. Those are about the conquering king, the second advent. So here's the first advent. This is about a change of law, day of Pentecost. And this is about the second advent, the fall feast. Now what does the Lord's table do? Lord's table tells us to look back at the cross, right? This was predictive in the Old Testament. But when the fulfillment came, is no longer predict predictive, it's a memorial. So the Lord's table looks at these as the memorial that they are. And we remember the sacrifice that he offered up, okay? The sacrifice is the, the sacrifice of the lamb. We recognize his work is the sacrifice. Unleavened bread is the perfect gift that it required to do that. And first fruits is resurrection from the dead. Okay, so that's what, that's what the Lord's table does. And the Lord's table, you can take it anywhere. You can go to India and take the Lord's table and you can teach these principles because these are all teaching tools. None of them are the reality like the Jews thought. What they are, teaching tools of the reality. Day of Pentecost, Mosaic Law, law given to Moses, on the mountain, 50 days after they walked out of Egypt, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, what happened on that day of Pentecost? The church started. What happened there? A new law was put into place. What was that new law? You're all priests. No more specialized priesthood at all. None at all. It's a universal priesthood. What is the, the law? You don't have to celebrate these because they're fulfilled. What is, what is the law? You shall love your neighbors yourself. You shall love as I loved you. You shall serve one another as I served you. It is following this new law that Jesus described, this new law that, that basically says to wash one another's feet and serve one another. It's a, it's a change of law. And <clears throat> then this, and it says, you know, the part of the Lord's table that says, as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes back. So what is this? When's he going to come back? It'll be at the rapture, but that's just the prelude to the second advent. Whenever he conquers all of his enemies, fulfills Psalm 110.1, uh, till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So I think that the Lord's table replaced the all of the feast. Now, uh, I'll go a step farther than that. Because there's only two rituals given for the church age. And interestingly uh, enough, you can uh, take them anywhere. <laughs> you can take them anywhere. Because the other ritual is baptism. Now, what did baptism do? I think it replaced all the Levitical offerings. Okay, just just think about it for just it's it's not a it's not a leap of faith because what were the Levitical offerings? The burn offering found in Leviticus one through five, the burn offering, which is a picture of the righteousness of God being satisfied or propitiated. The second one is the gift offering. They call it the uh, grain offering. It's uh, the, the uh, Hebrew word is minka, it's a minka offering, which means to give. So it's, I think, better rendered as a gift offering. And it shows the perfection, needed perfection of the sacrifice. The next one is the peace offering. Peace offering pray, portrays the manward side of salvation. Burn offering is the Godward side as justice is propitiated. 
the peace offering is reconciliation, the manward side, that there's now peace established between man and God so you can come to God. The sin offering and trespass offering, one was about unknown sins and the other about known sins. Okay, did Jesus fulfill all these on the cross? Why do we not offer up animal sacrifices anymore? We're not under the law. For one thing, but it's not just we're not under the law. These have all been fulfilled in the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Now, what does baptism do? It identifies you with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think water baptism, and I believe in immersion, because <laughs> that's to me what the word means, to immerse. And <clears throat> if you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? That he fulfilled all those things. He paid for known sins, paid for unknown sins. He satisfied the Father with a perfect gift, and he reconciled us to him. So I think baptism takes the place of all the Levitical offerings teaches the same principles, only teaches them is fulfilled instead of coming events. Big change, yeah. Where's the rapture in the second group of feasts? The, the, the rapture will happen seven years prior to the second advent, but the reason I point to second advent is because this is the way the Jews saw it. They didn't know anything about the church. So you can't read the church into the age of Israel. It, it becomes a problem when you do. So <clears throat> um, the second advent is what it's looking at. But it's only separated by seven years, so there's not a lot of difference. If you see the second advent approaching, the know the rapture is going to deliver you from the wrath that is to come. It's going to happen before that. The church is not destined for wrath. So... Where does the rapture come? It's not the rapture's not portrayed in the feast. I guess that's one way to say it. It's not in um, the feast of trumpets. No. Feast of trumpets is those feasts they are for Israel, and you have to keep keep those separate. Now I know the you're probably thinking of the passage that says uh, when the Lord comes at the last trumpet. There are other trumpets besides the feast of trumpets, and that's part of what the a trumpet could be blown for a convocation of a special event in Israel. So that's what we're going to have at the rapture, is a, <clears throat> the blowing of the trumpet at the second event. It's, it's interesting to try and put... Um, it, it, I think everybody waits for the seventh trumpet in the Feast of Trumpets uh, in the Fall Feast, and we're wondering if the rapture is going to happen then. With that seventh trumpet of the Feast of Trumpets, I believe the second advent will happen in conjunction with that. But the, the rapture and second advent are separated by seven years, but they're seven 360-day years, not 365-day years. So there's 35-day differential in that. You can't really... day it. We were talking before class, I don't want to put a date on it. I got an idea, <laughs> but I'm not going to put a date on it, John. <clears throat> uh, the trumpet blast that, uh, that signifies the rapture, that's a worldwide uh, trumpet blast, right? That's the way I understand it, because, go ahead. Are they going to be worldwide? That's a good question. Uh, the, the one at the rapture, because it's instantaneous in the twinkling of an eye and it's worldwide, I would say that trumpet's heard around the world. Okay, but the other seven trumpets are in conjunction with the Feast of Israel. And it'll be interesting because they'll be backed up, a siege being laid to Jerusalem. And it looks like they're still celebrating that feast even when they're getting ready to die and that because by that time about all you got left believers you got the 144,000 that are still alive and these these are special people 
these are really special people that survived a seven years of of uh, being hunted and tracked and everything else and uh, it would it would surprise me if they didn't celebrate the feast really Danny that's millennial uh -uh. the <clears throat> millennial um, that's in Ezekiel 40 to 48 <clears throat> Is the line of Zadok, the Zadokite priesthood, and that's a millennial, the millennial priesthood. They'll go back to a priesthood that's uh, in the tribulation. We know they'll go back because they all start offering up sacrifices. Okay? And they do that in the first part of the trib, and in the middle part, the, the Antichrist puts an end to sacrifice and burn offerings is what it spells out there so he puts an end to the sacrifices and uh, so we know they're sacrificing again but the the tribulational temple is in the wrong spot it's wrong dimensions we know that from revelation 11 where it tells them to take a measuring stick take john take the stick measure the temple and what he finds out is that it's the wrong dimensions, it doesn't fit the millennial temple dimensions given in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Okay, so it's false. There's signs that point out that this Antichrist is a false, false Christ. He is not their, not their Messiah. Yeah. Going back to the, the rapture trumpet, isn't that like a private event that like only Christians will hear, but other people will hear a loud noise. What I, <laughs> it's First Thessalonians 4.16 is where, 16 to 18 is where that comes from. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel. Okay, and an archangel can, can speak to the whole world at once. Okay, it, the, the, the Greek literally says an archangelic voice. Okay, but the Lord himself is going to do that. Now, there's three angels in Revelation 14 that all speak to the whole world, okay? So, there's no problem with the Lord doing that. I think it's, I, I really suspect that it's going to be clear as a bell. People hear it in their own language. It's going to be clear as a bell worldwide. Even non-Christians? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, I, I think it will be because... What's going on right now? I mean, if we put it into this today context, they were told it's just going to go from from bad to worse. That's all that this is going to do is go from bad to worse. We've got we've got a context today that denies the Lord, denies anything about Him. That's going to say that all these Christians were caught up into the mothership by the aliens that are now invading the earth and all that, who are really demonic creatures and. And uh, that we don't need an Area 51 to hide them all out. They're all actually running around on the earth right now. It's the day as it was in the days of Noah. And and then, <clears throat> so the Lord is not bold, uh, not shy about things. I think whenever He does it, whole world's gonna, whole world's gonna know. They're gonna hear Him. It's gonna be clear. I think just like the archangel, archangel that gives the eternal gospel. Says flying in mid heaven in Revelation fourteen six, he gives the whole world the gospel, and they all understand it. So that way, then people get saved as a result of that. So anyway, that 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 uh, last trumpet. Like I say, they, the, the, there is a feast of trumpets, but they blew trumpets at other times. And when the trumpet blew, that means it's time to assemble. Okay, that was the main thing. Assemble for battle, assemble for worship. They blew it at multiple times. And right now, it's time for Christians to assemble when that, when that trumpet is heard. But that word, last trumpet, it'd be the last one of the church age. Okay, it'll be the... That's what it can mean easily of last trumpet without reading anything into it. No. no. Well, don't scratch your head or I'll call on you. <laughs> this was an auction. You just bought something. <laughs> Jordan? 
the child in Revelation 12, um, do you know who that represents? The child, that Revelation 12 goes back to the uh, fact of Christ. It's a historical event when it goes, it goes in there. And it's basically saying, because Revelation 12 is the very center, dead center of the book of Revelation, verse-wise. Okay, I know there's 22 chapters, and that's 12, and it sounds, but verse-wise, it's right dead square in the middle. And verse 7 to 9 is the middle verses of the book of Revelation. Verse 7 to 9 is the devil getting cast out of heaven for the final time. Okay, so that whole chapter is about angelic conflict. And it's just telling us right in the middle of all this stuff is angelic conflict. It's a battle that's going, it's a battle that's going on. So, the unseen battle, it always happens in the, in the unseen world uh, before it spills over into the seen world, it seems like. There was a war in heaven, the real Star Wars. War going on in heaven, that's chapter 12. You know, and the devil and his angels, Michael and his angels, and they threw him out for the final time. And he lands on earth, and what, what happens? He goes forth with great fury, knowing that his time is short. That's what happens. He indwells the Antichrist, and it really goes from bad to worse right after that. Danny. Yeah. Well, aliens, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson's talking about aliens now, and if he's talking about them, they've got to be real. But there's, uh, <laughs> are they? <laughs> that little booger. Well, <clears throat> there's, uh, there, it's quite interesting because when you, <clears throat> When you want to do, uh, when you want to study something systematically, okay, you have to put it together first from the scripture, and ask, does it line up with the scripture? Okay, which requires a proper interpretation of the scripture, because it's so easy to want to read stuff back in and read stuff back in, and into the scripture that, not there, and it doesn't doesn't say so <clears throat> uh, aliens have people looked at aliens for a long time yes are they demons who've been able to manifest themselves possibly now what I find from the scripture and what I've, I've heard even recently is that a demon can choose to manifest himself any way he wants to I disagree with that statement I don't think a demon can manifest himself without divine permission. And there's a lot of evidence to go along with that because he's, he's going to have to have permission even from God to do that. Or wouldn't Satan be walking around on the earth in this, all of his full glory right now if he had a permission to do that? I mean, that's, that's what he would do. And demons work in the unseen world. And we have to, <clears throat> then we have to start realizing, what about the unseen world? Because I heard a very important statement um, yesterday or t this morning that spiritual, the spiritual uh, is not bound by the laws of physics. Very interesting statement that you have to stop and think about. I mean, how does our prayers go instantly from here to the third heaven and back with an answer? How do they do that? The physics don't work at all. I mean, you're in a whole different realm. I don't like to use the word dimension because when we get in, we start talking about dimensions, then we start looking at multiple dimensions. I think basically there's two and one is the one that God lives in. The other is the one we live in. God and the angels live in that unseen dimension. But it is still real, even though it is unseen, which we have to really think about. But <clears throat> God's, 
angels. Jesus went back and forth to heaven multiple times, three times before he finally ascended to the right hand of the Father. We can count the times that he went back and forth in the, in the Gospels. How long did that take? Because we think of the third heaven being outside of the solar system. Well, yeah, what's the speed of light? 186,000 miles a second. We know what it is. The nearest star is, what, two light years away, which is roughly 12 trillion miles. That's bigger, almost big as a national debt. <coughs> they're, they're massive. But, but the, you know, when, when God <laughs> speaks, things happen. Because he's the one that establishes the laws of physics. So he's not bound by them. And we... Well, and look at Jesus entering into the, walk through the walls. And won't that be fun? I just hate to walk through those hallways at our house to go outside. <laughs> Longer than Brad. Yeah, well, and it's the first, first two chapters of Job, which are the, really the first book of the Bible, established the angelic conflict. And, it, and there, there's nothing really that changes because Satan's getting permission. What God gave him for you can do this, you can do this, you can't kill him. So what did he do? He, had, he killed his family is what he did. So the, the, the demons, the devils, the ETs, whatever you want to call them, along there they they were uh quite active but you know i think of uh, legion coming up to to christ and um he was uh, the very fact that he got there because the, the demons didn't didn't like christ quite obviously they knew who he was they identified him right off and they came up uh to him and then they're begging because they say, are you going to send us into the pit yet? Is it now? It's not the time yet. I mean, they're, they're basically pleading with him. And the Lord casts them out. He throws them out of, uh, he throws them out of uh, the man named Legion or called Legion. And so you have a, a situation where the the demons are submitted to him, but they have to ask for permission. What, um, uh, who else was it that, uh, well, <laughs> Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, Peter. Now, isn't that him asking permission? That's all, we, that's all I see in Scripture, is that they have to have permission to do that. They don't have the power to automatically appear in disappear and change form and do all those other things so uh, anyway I'm, I'm open to other passages if you can find them but my studies have not led that way when you when you study the scripture systematically if you want to look at angelic conflict you have to study a biblical theology of angels now that biblical theology is different than systematic a biblical theology takes a topic and you study that topic and you get what that topic says like angelology then you take another passage like the study of man anthropology you study what the bible has to say about man man has a sin nature uh, etc you study anthropology you study angelology you study anthropology you study christology who's christ you study what's called theology proper which is the study of the father sometimes called paterology you study the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. You study eschatology, last things. You, you study all those things, and then you try to find out how do they fit together. That's systematic theology. But each one of those, those disciplines that is there, you have to study what, is, what does it say about angels. And, and then you put together a model. You put the jigsaw puzzle together to try and gain an understanding. And we need to, as we study that, 
Mario and I were talking today, there's not a whole lot of people today trained to do that or even think it's important to let Scripture interpret itself and compare Scripture with Scripture. It's, it's, uh, you have to let Scripture interpret itself. Don't let outside forces like commentaries and things tell you how to do it. You have to study it for yourself and figure out how it fits. So um, how do you understand grace and works? They seem to be antithetical at times, and yet they go together. But how? That's the study of systematic theology. That's, that's where the differing things are. John. With the women. All right? No. Uh, prior to the flood, and the reason I say no is because the passage in Jude that says those angels left their first estate, their, their established uh, role, if you will. What they did was, was violate. Uh, violate what their uh, assigned task was. Okay, they didn't. They didn't have permission. So, what did he do with those angels? Well, he locked them up in Tartarus. Okay, and if you look at the, um, what is viewed as Sheol. This is all called Sheol. Okay, on one side is paradise, or Abraham's bosom. And the other side is called Hades, or torments. And then there's another place over here called Tartarus. And that's found in Jude as well. Now, Tartarus is the abode of those angels that were locked up. Okay? And so, those angel demons that went in, cohabited with women, violated their first estate, which is violating a, a law that had been established. And where there's a violation of a the law, there's, there's a penalty somewhere. And so, what looks like happened is that God enforced that law. After they did that, he locked all those angels up, but he didn't lock up all the demons because not all the demons were involved in the infiltration. And that's why there's still bad angels roaming around on earth today. But I don't think that they have the capability to do that anymore where they did at one time. Sue? Estate. And would you explain that? Okay, that is the role assigned to the angels. And that's the best, best way I've seen to explain it. The role assigned to the angels. And there were, uh, they violated their first estate, which means that there were laws. Where there's no law, there is no punishment. Where there is no law, sin is not imputed. Romans 4.15 and 5.13. So there had to be a law that they violated for God to have locked them up. So when, when they were thrown out of heaven, does that extrapolate to the angels that are in Tartarus? They, they were already thrown out of heaven. They were, they were already out of heaven. Right. The angels could go back and forth. Okay, they could go back and forth up to a, a point in time. They... Because the devil goes back and forth now accusing the brethren. Okay? So, but he's going to reach that stage in Revelation 12 that he's thrown out and he can't go back anymore. Okay? So he's, he's accusing the brethren. But the angels are roaming the earth. Uh, Job 1 and 2, Satan was out roaming the earth, uh, prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so um, they, had, they had permission to inhabit the earth. But they had, um, uh, but whenever they violated that law, God locked them up. That's that's what he. That's what he. That's the way I understand. That's the way I put the data together.
I don't see any other way to put it together. I'll be glad I'm open to a better model, a better picture. Huh? Are those the angels that come out during the trib with the fifth trumpet? Possibly. Okay, I, I see a, my, my view is it's a strong probability, but I, I don't know. I, I can't, <laughs> I don't have quite enough connections that I can say definitively that's it, but I, I suspect that. Anyway, angelic conflict, I, I can talk with you for days about it. I love to talk about it because why are we here? Did God need us? I mean, <laughs> he didn't need us. He was perfectly happy without us. I think we probably brought more misery <laughs> to him. But what is he going to have? Well, with the Jews, a people for his own possession. What is he going to have? He's going to have the church, the bride. He's going to have a bride for his son. I mean, the, it's been costly uh, in a lot of ways. It cost his son his death on a cross. But what are the rewards going to be? Because to have a, you know, when you start thinking about angels, you start thinking, some people ask crazy questions, uh, like me and a few other people. All right, angels sinned. Okay. Uh, can they still sin and fall if they're not already fallen? If not, why not? I mean, these are legitimate questions to ask. Do they still have volition and free will? What happens when they fail? Well, how do we ever reach a point that we will have a body that will no longer be able to sin. See, they're created, I believe, much like Adam and Eve were created, able not to sin. Okay, through obedience, they were able not to sin. How long did they live before they sinned? I have no idea. Some people say thousands of years, billions of years. I don't know. It doesn't matter. What we do know is that when God creates things, he creates them perfect. Okay, that's part of what he does. And then there is, but he gave his creatures free will. How can we ever have a position of free will, still have free will, and not be able to sin? Well, there's an answer. And the answer to that is, you are born with a sin nature, but when you believe in Christ, you're imputed as righteousness. Okay, so we've got his righteousness with that the Holy Spirit and a war going on between the flesh and the spirit. That's what we've, that's what we've got. We have his, his righteousness. What does a new body not have? It has no sin nature, but it has his righteousness. So we now have, as believers, the righteousness of God. Because God still has volition and he doesn't sin. That's hard for us to grasp, but we just, we have no frame of reference for it. So this righteousness that he gave to us one day will be manifest in a new body that will not be able to sin. Now how does a creature become not able to sin? By being given the righteousness of God. Hmm. Now, there's some, op there's some options there. Uh, I personally believe all the angels fell, which a lot of people go, oh, that's heresy. But Colossians 1.20 says that he, that he might reconcile all things to himself, whether things in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, and authorities. Colossians 1.15-20 obviously includes the angels. Nobody will argue with that. 1.20 says to reconcile. Seems like I read about a... Offering of reconciliation. Reconcile means to move from a position of hostility to a position of peace. What did he do with us? We were once his enemies. Now we are his kids. Okay? Reconciliation. To reconcile all things to himself, to me, is a blanket statement that everything needed reconciliation. 
Okay? Now, if you, if, if you believe it, only a third of the angels fell and two-thirds of the angels didn't, he could have imputed his righteousness to them at that point in time. But if he didn't do it, they, were still, they would still be able to sin. But we don't find angels sinning now. If you ask that question, well, could, could Michael the archangel sin? Who's going to blow the trumpet if Gabriel goofs up? What's got, I mean, you, you, you get into a whole bunch of what-if type of things, but God could have, could have imputed his righteousness to them. What I'm saying is they need his righteousness to no longer be able to sin, and demons were shut off. The ones that chose against God and chose to stay that way, you know, it, they're out of luck. Are you here to throw us into the flames now? They know what their end is. There's none of, you'd think if you're a demon condemned to hell, then, then you might go, you might be the one yelling, Lord have mercy on us, a sinner. But you don't find that anywhere in the scripture. They're not asking for salvation. They're not asking for deliverance. They know what their fate is. And that's what you do find in Scripture. So anyway, that's just some of the, some of the arguments and the thoughts that, that we... to try and figure this thing out. But the bottom line is, how then should we live? Because I love details. I love to study the details and try to see how things fit together. But... Then it boils down to how do I live my life? Because I know all this stuff about angels and men and <laughs> all these things. <clears throat> comes down to two things. In my life on a daily walk with the Lord, do I love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And do I love my neighbors myself? See, that's the bottom line of all this. That's the test. So, <clears throat> while things are important, they're interesting, they keep our attention, the big deal is, in the middle of all this evil and perverted generation, am I going to love God even when it doesn't make sense? When he doesn't make sense? And am I going to love my neighbor even when they're utterly unlovable? See, that's where impact in the angelic conflict comes from. No matter... What, what viewpoint you hold about different things on that, it all comes down to those, to those two great commandments. That's where the impact is in the angelic conflict. And that's where the Great Commission finds itself. <clears throat> Go and make disciples. So, anyway. Um, uh, about run out of time here. Is there... Uh, uh, did you did you have another question, John? You want me to try to answer one about those things I listened to, or we'll talk about those. Okay. I, I thought his comment about the Barna survey was interesting. When you look at young people today, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they go off to college and they come back and yeah, they, they, they lost their faith. Uh, they get exposed to uh, things in college. And, uh, I thought his point about uh, their struggle with uh, science issues. Mm-hmm. Well, it is a big issue, and what John's talking about is there's a study by uh, George Barna, and <clears throat> why are the kids leaving? The, why are kids leaving the faith? Why do they grow up in church, good parents, godly parents, and they they get out and they go to college, and by the time they get done with a lot of times even the first six months to a year, their faith is gone, and that's because that it's a <clears throat> it's a total assault on everything they've been taught almost from the time they walk into a college now. Uh, in 1967, Helen and I went to Stillwater, <clears throat> Oklahoma State University. She took an Old Testament survey class from the head of the religion department. 
if you can believe there was a religion department ever at Oklahoma State, there was. And he opened the class, freshman, saying, if you believe in the virgin birth, you're stupid. That's in 1967. Okay, that's a, that uh, is a total assault. And part of what we we did, and and did did the church fail? Did parents fail? In a way, maybe we taught them what to believe and didn't teach them why why it's believable. Maybe that's what what happened. Is there such a conflict between science and the scripture? And uh, there seems to be. I don't believe true science and scripture contradict each other. Um, but finding where that where that uh, medium is, that's I, I I run into people that do that start twisting scripture and taking only the pieces they like to prove their point instead of taking all of scripture and trying to deal with that and. That dis that discredits everybody when we do that. So, yeah, last week we talked about uh, the timing of the the start point of the regathering of the fig tree. Start point of the regathering of the fig tree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh. Well, uh, John's talking about there's a video done by uh, Hugh Ross and some guys in an interview, and he talked about 1948 as the starting starting point, and he brought up uh, it basically was miraculous that Israel's even here. Uh, Golda Meir ended up here. Uh, they were out of money. They didn't have any money to begin with. <laughs> they were out of money. They had their air force was one Piper Cub. <laughs> their their artillery was a Jeep with a <laughs> 50 cal on the back of it or something like that. And she comes over here with ten dollars in her pocket and leaves with 50 million and it <laughs> ends up back there in Israel to be able to buy the arms they need and be able to fight and and to win. And it, it looks, yeah, I. 1948 is a good number for me. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy with that. That's why I think the rapture will be this year. That's as close as I'm going to get. <laughs> I know, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> um, the books that uh, I've talked about, I've been working on since Foundations 1 was done in 2000, so 20 years ago. Been working on this other book. We've got it done. It's shipped today from the printer. It's supposed to be here Friday. We're supposed to unload it. And by the grace of God, we'll have some for you on Sunday <laughs> here at the front. So uh, I'm extremely happy uh, for that because it's called Foundations to Defending the Faith. And it is about basic things that hopefully you can learn and we can be able to counter some of this stuff because sometimes it's when we want to counter things sometimes we want people ask you what time it is and we're going to tell them how to build a watch the old the old cliche sometimes we need just a simple answer to get them to start talking because uh if you can get the conversation going again then you've got an opportunity and so, what can you say? What are some things you can talk about? Um, it's, it's just quite interesting. The misconceptions that, that are floating around out there. I had a conversation with a young man about uh, who actually was going to be an apologist. Christian apologist. He went off to college. And... Um, Next time I heard from him, he, he was a militant atheist. And um, he was, uh, and he said, what do you do? And I gave him the worst piece of advice I ever gave anybody. You need to go ahead and get your college degree because usually theology degrees are advanced degrees and go ahead and get it. Well, I, I shouldn't have said that because he, he went and got this degree and he came back and I'm, we have a long conversation on the phone and... Uh, 
he's talking, we're going through the seven points of evolutionary theory and what the problems are, and he accepts them all. Um, and I'm thinking, how could you do that? And I asked him, I said, he said, well, the fossil record shows it. And I said, oh, really? I said, um, he said, oh, yeah, the missing links are all there. And I said, really? He said, oh, yeah, we've got all the fossils there. And I said, your professor tell you that? I said, yeah. I said, can you send me the links? Can you show me the fossils that are the missing links where things jump from one species to another species? Can you show me that? I'm still waiting on those because they don't exist. They don't exist. And yet it's a common lie that's spread out that there's all kinds of fossil record and the fossil record takes a quantum leap in different directions and there is no intermediaries on those things. So those are facts that you need to be able to, to know whenever you, whenever you get asked a question like that. Anyway, I can talk all night, but it's good. Huh? <laughs> Sue? Ask him which came first, gravity or matter. What? <laughs> I think they were the same. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like... You can't have one evolved without the other. How, how do you have... Uh... <laughs> okay. How long did it take God to create the heavens and the earth? <laughs> one word. That's what it says. He spoke it into existence. And so, so that's a spiritual issue, is it not? So it's not bound by the laws of physics. He could establish the laws of physics with the one word. And it's suddenly there. Okay, that's, that's the God I understand. That's compatible with his essence as to who he is. So we can measure how it looks now. But there's only a certain point we can go back on that. Anyway. All right, let's pray. Father, it's a good night. We've had a good time visiting about your word. And Father, trying to understand it better. And Father, we just we thank you for, for this opportunity to get together. Father, I hope we've learned something tonight. I hope we're able to remember it. I hope we're able to use it wisely. Father, I pray that we will love you in the middle of a perverted and crooked generation and father we will not let our love grow cold because lawlessness has increased we ask it in jesus name amen